This 80s flick is more than just a vehicle for laughs. It's a biting satire that skewers societal norms and exposes the fault lines of privilege and inequality. Its significance lies in using humor as a Trojan horse for razor-sharp commentary, causing audiences to laugh and reflect on the absurdity of the disparities between the haves and the have-nots. As we revisit this holiday cult classic, we will celebrate not only the impeccable comedic timing of its top-notch cast, but also the film's ability to tackle weighty social issues with a light-hearted touch. Whether it's the memorable scenes and the commodities exchange, the rowdy party at Winthrop's townhouse, or the unforgettable New Year's Eve train ride, it still holds up as a great example of satirical comedy that has an impact beyond its time. So look over your pork belly futures, dust off your quart of blood karate technique, and try not to misplace your gorilla costume as Tyra Williams and I discuss trading places from 1983 on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Dan Ackwood. This man is physically threatening me. And Eddie Murphy. <laughs> Are trading places. Find out. I'm, I'm going to get to the bottom. This is a great, great mistake. It didn't look just like the dude that had me busted. It was the dukes. It was the dukes. You're a dead man, Valentine. Dan Aykroyd. Eddie Murphy. Billy Ray Valentine. Capricorn. Trading Places, coming this summer. I'm Tim Williams, the mastermind behind the mic at the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Joining me on each epic episode is a guest co-host who's as crazy about 80s flicks as they are about wearing parachute pants and solving Rubik's Cubes. We're diving into nostalgic treasures we saw at the local theater, rented on VHS tapes, or discovered on cable TV. From blockbusters that make you say, I feel the need, the need for speed. To hidden gems that'll have you screaming, They're here. It's a blast to relive these old memories and share our thoughts on what made these movies so special. We reminisce about our first time watch experiences, share our favorite scenes, and even discover fascinating behind the scenes tales about the cast and crew along the way. Haven't hit that subscribe button yet? What are you waiting for? Come on, do it. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And hey, while you're at it, be a pal and drop us a written review along with a five-star rating to tell us what you think about us. Sportos, motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, wasteoids, dweebies, they all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. Take a day off and come hang out with us on social media. Just search 80s Flick Flashback on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And don't forget to bookmark 80sflickflashback.com for more gnarly content. Get out of town. I didn't know you did anything creative. Want to crank it all the way up to 11? Become a supporter on buymeacoffee.com for only $5 a month. Do or do not. There is no try. Click the link in our episode show notes, and while you're there, soak up the extra trivia and fun stuff that didn't make it into today's show. Thanks again for tuning in. Now, let's get right into today's episode. Well, welcome in, everybody. So glad to have you on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. 
and happy holidays. Merry Christmas. We're in the happy holiday season. Yes, we are. Yep. And uh, talking about what would probably be considered a non-traditional uh, holiday movie, but still one that's set at Christmas and one that's watched by a lot of people around the holidays, even though the climax of the movie happens on New Year's Eve. But it's a lot. It still happens around Christmas time, so it works. So it happens in the winter. There you go. <laughs> so we're talking about Trading Places from 1983, and uh, it's been a while, but I'm glad, glad to have my lovely wife back with me on this episode. Hey, y'all. Say hello <laughs> to Tyra Williams. <laughs> <laughs> Let's jump right in. Jump when, did, in. when did you see Trading Places for the very first time? I want to say at home with my mama. Okay. That's, that, <laughs> that's a that's a valid answer. Yeah, yeah, I remember seeing that one at home. So on video, v- on yeah, VCR, VCR, yeah, or VCR. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, yep, on the video. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, this is one that it, I didn't see until I was much older. At least the non-TV version. I think I saw a TV version of it when I was younger, and I think I'd recorded it off of TV, mm-hmm. so I'd seen it a couple of times. So it was still funny. It wasn't one of my favorite Eddie Murphy movies. I right. still liked. Uh, Coming to America, Better, a Beverly Hills Cop. I mean, those are ones I think of before I think about trading places right. a lot. Yeah, I, I <clears throat> never really considered that one an Eddie Murphy movie. Right, yeah. Because it wasn't Eddie Murphy in his pure comedic form, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, so, he was yeah. This, He was still kind of getting started um, with his movie career at this point. Mm-hmm. How long had it been since you watched it before rewatching it for the podcast? Probably since I watched it at home with my mother. <laughs> oh my gosh. I don't remember seeing it again, to be mm. honest. I had to have seen it at some point in the last 30 years. But right. I just think, because when we watched it recently, I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I remember mm-hmm. that. Yeah, I remember that. So it's in there somewhere. Right, but right. Yeah, I can't tell you the last time I saw it again, except for... <laughs> At some point in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I watched it. it. It had been a long time since I watched like the original, you know, uh, theatrical version, not the TV version. And then I want to say it was either last year or the year before last when I was there. I bought like a combo Christmas movies on mm-hmm. Vudu and it was one of them. So I rewatched it then. And I think seeing it now as an adult. Is like I appreciated it more, understood more about mm-hmm. it. Still don't understand the whole how the stock market works, and we'll talk about that. Right, right, we right. Because <laughs> we're both like, I still don't understand. And I don't think that nobody understood in this movie uh, what it really meant. But I understand now why it's one that people want to watch every Christmas. Because now it's like, I want to watch this. Maybe not every year, but I would definitely want to watch it every couple of years. Mm-hmm. Because it is... It's a fun comedy. It, it, there's a lot of good, funny scenes. Yes. Uh, even though it's not technically like really a Christmas movie, it is set around Christmas. And so that it does have that kind of uh, that fun nostalgia aspect of it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's uh, jump into story origin and pre-production like we do. So uh, share a little bit that we found. And then, uh, Tyra, you can jump in if you want to comment on anything. Okay. So. So in the early 80s, writer Timothy Harris often played tennis against two wealthy but frugal brothers who regularly engaged in a competitive rivalry in betting. Following one session, Harris returned home exasperated with the pair's conflict and concluded they were awful people. Hmm. (laughs) The situation gave him the idea of two brothers betting over nature versus nurture in terms of human ability. Hmm. Harris showed the idea with his writing partner, Herschel Weingrod, who liked the concept. 
So Harris and Weingrad researched the commodities market for the script. They learned of financial market incidents, including Russian attempts to corner the wheat market and the Hunt brothers' efforts to corner the silver market on what became known as Silver Thursday. Mm. They thought trading orange juice and pork bellies would be funnier because the public would be unaware such mundane items were being traded. Mm -hmm. Harris consulted with people in the commodities business to understand how the film's finale on the trading floor would work. (laughs) The pair determined that the commodities market would make for an interesting setting for a film as long as it was not about the financial market itself. They needed something to draw the audience in. It was decided to set the story in Philadelphia because of its connections to the founding of the United States, the American dream and and idealism, and the pursuit of happiness. This was tempered by introducing Billy Ray Valentine as a black man begging on the street. The Mm -hmm. pair knew that the method of Winthrop and Valentine's financial victory could be confusing, but hoped that audience would be too invested in the character's success to care about the details, which was a lot of movies in the 80s where details didn't matter. Which... Brings me to mm-hmm. we were watching, and um, when the brothers were explaining to um, Valentine mm-hmm. what they what commodities meant, mm-hmm. they were explaining it to him as if he were dumb, right? But then when he told them what how, when he had broke it down to them, they mm-hmm. were like, Oh wow! And so I'm thinking, Okay, we don't know anything about Billy Valentine, right? Was yeah. did he have a degree? Did he go to college? Mm-hmm. Was he educated? What was his job before he was? Begging on the streets, you right, know, right. looking like he didn't have legs and stuff mm-hmm. like that. You know, where did he come from? But yeah. those details are, are missing. Right, you know? right. Yeah, we talked about that about, and we can talk more about it later, but there isn't very much backstory for Billy Ray Valentine mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. You get a little bit more of Winthrop, you know, you knew he grew up rich. Yeah. His parents died. Right. You know, but it's kind of, you know, it's it. unfortunately it's kind of falls in those stereotypes of like, Rich white man, poor black man. That's right. all you need to know. That's all you need to know. <laughs> so that, so not, not the best backstories, right? So the script was sold to Paramount Pictures under the title Black and White. Oh my gosh! Then Paramount executive Jeffrey Katzenberg offered the project to director John Landis. Landis didn't like the working title, but favorably compared the script to older screwball comedies of the '30s mm-hmm. by directors like Frank, Frank Capra who often satirize social constructs and social classes reflecting the cultural issues on their, on, of their time. Landis wanted this film to reflect those concepts in the 80s, which I think is what he did. The script underwent minor changes throughout filming. Some improvisation was also encouraged with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> changes were normally discussed in advance, but on other occasions, ad-lib dialogue was considered funny enough to keep. Examples of ad-libs retained in the film include Valentine comparing Randolph to Randy Jackson of the Jackson 5 and demonstrating his court of blood technique in the jail, which I thought was really funny. His his karate. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) That was funny, yes. Murphy liked the Trading Places script. He felt it was unlike 48 Hours, which he had said had been saved by director Walter Hill. Even so, he changed many of his own lines because he said that a white writer writing for a black person would use stereotypical dialogue like jive turkey and sucker, mm-hmm. and he would write his lines to sound more authentic. Mm-hmm. Weingrod said the studio objected to Murphy's line, who put these cools out on my Persian rug? They <laughs> believed it was racist because the cool cigarette brand was targeted mainly at African Americans, mm-hmm. but Murphy restored the line. Ophelia pretending to be a European exchange student to fool Beaks was also improvised because Curtis, Jamie Lee Curtis had to use a mix of German attire with a Swedish accent, because she, can, she couldn't do the German accent. Wow. Which I thought was pretty funny. Mm-hmm. But interesting, interesting, interesting. Anything you want to mention about how it came together? 
Well, I think for Eddie Murphy, because, you know, I watched a lot of his stand-up comedy mm-hmm. stuff. Um, and when he was on Saturday Night Live, of course. Yep. So there were a couple of scenes where you could, for me, it was like, he he really would go down a rabbit hole, but mm-hmm. he better not because it wasn't related to the movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but like when they were explaining, you know, wheat, which makes bread, mm-hmm. and pork bellies, which is bacon, like on a BLT. And then Eddie Murphy looks at the camera right. like that. Um, like when he was uh, on Saturday Night Live doing Mr. Uh, Robinson's Neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. uh-oh. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he had that look on his face like, mm-hmm. I know you're not telling me what bacon right. is, you right. know. Right, right. Um, but just some of those, it was just a couple of scenes that I was like, man, it reminds me of this. Or it reminds me of when he did this, you know, and like the hot tub scene. Mm-hmm. He said the uh, house in the hot tub. And I was just waiting for him to say, want to get in hot tub, you yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> the James Brown skit, yep. But um, it was, I just, you know, I just love Eddie Murphy as an actor, mm-hmm. as a comedian and an actor. Right. But it was just some of those scenes where it was kind of, related to other works that he had done mm-hmm. and i was just like waiting for him to just jump out of character oh but yeah of yeah. course you know he's he a stayed professional, in character so yeah. he stayed in character yeah, but it was good it was funny and now these messages what's up dudes i'm jerry d of totally rad christmas the podcast that talks all things christmas in the 80s toys movies specials music books fashion and fads if it was gnarly during christmas in the 80s he's got it covered Wait, is there a lot of things to talk about for the 80s and Christmas? Well, you got the movie giants like Christmas Vacation, Scrooge, and A Christmas Story. There are TV specials like Muppet Family Christmas, Claymation Christmas Celebration, and a Garfield Christmas Special. Plus classics shown every year. You also jam out to Last Christmas, Do They Know It's Christmas, and Christmas in Hollis. But most of all, it was a time for the most bodacious, best-selling Christmas toys ever, like He-Man, G.I. Joe, Transformers, and Cabbage Patch Kids. Yes, them too. We cover them all, plus much more, including standard segments like Hap Hap Happiest Memory, Gagging with the Spoon, The Other Half of the Battle, and Chant with the Littles. So tune in to Totally Rad Christmas everywhere you get your podcasts. Turn the clock back and dive into those warm and fuzzy memories. Later, dudes. (sighs) What seems to be the problem, pal? There's just so much pain in the world, so many issues. I don't think I can bear it. Well, friendo, it sounds like you could use a dose of pop culture roulette. Pop culture roulette? What's that? Some sort of pop culture-themed podcast or something? That's right, sonny boy. When hope seems far, dive into some PCR! But I already get my entertainment news from Variety. Huh, that's pretty good. If you're a chucklehead, PCR gives you news you need, condensed, unfiltered, and raw, from three nerds who know a little something about something. Wow, okay, sign me up. That's the spirit. Pop Culture Roulette. New episodes every Monday, available on all major podcast directories. All right, let's talk about casting. So Trading Places was actually developed with the intent to cast comedy duo Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder Mm. as Valentine and Winthorpe, respectively. That would have been interesting. Yeah, the pair were in high demand following the success of their comedy Stir Crazy in Mm. 1980. But when Richard Pryor was severely injured after setting fire to himself while freebasing cocaine, the decision was made to cast someone else. Wow. Yeah. Paramount Pictures suggested Eddie Murphy. The studio was in, the studio was initially unhappy with Murphy's performance in the first film, which was unreleased at that time, 48 Hours. 
a film also conceived as a prior project. However, that film was well-received by preview test audiences, leading the studio to reverse its opinion. Mm. Landis was not aware of who Eddie Murphy was, who had been gaining fame as a performer on Saturday Night Live. After watching Murphy's audition tapes, Landis was impressed enough to travel to New York to meet with him. Cool. So let's talk a little bit about Eddie Murphy. Of course, we've talked about him on uh, Coming to America. And that's the only other Eddie Murphy movie we've covered so far on the podcast, mm-hmm. but that was three years ago. But he, of course, he rose to fame on the sketch comedy show, Saturday Night Live, we mentioned that already, for which he was a regular cast member from 1980 to 1984. He also worked as a stand-up comedian and is ranked number 10 on Comedy Central's list of the 100 greatest stand-ups of all time. Wow. He's received a Grammy Award, an Emmy Award, and was honored with the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor in 2015 and the Golden Globe Cecil B. DeMille Award in 2023. He's received Golden Globe nominations for his performances in 48 Hours in 1982, the Beverly Hills Cop series from 84 to present, Trading Places in 83, Nutty Professor in 96, Dolomite is My Name in 2019. He's also won numerous awards for his work on the fantasy comedy film Dr. Doolittle in 1998 and his 2001 sequel. In 2007, Murphy won the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor and received a nomination for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his portrayal of soul singer James Thunder Early in the musical film Dreamgirls, which mm-hmm. I really thought he should have won that because yeah. he was really good. That was a great, that was a good comeback performance mm-hmm. for him. So, um, But yeah, I love Eddie Murphy. I mean, I think, uh, especially in the 80s, Yep. So many, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the Beverly Hills Cop movies. Of course you are. <laughs> uh, I love Coming to America. That's one of the first movies we did on the podcast, mm-hmm. so it's always fun. But what do you think? What is your favorite Eddie Murphy movie? Oh, I don't know, because I like everything. <laughs> um, I, I don't know if you mentioned the one he did with the little girl from um, Blackish. Oh, yeah, that was much later. That was... Uh, oh, yeah. Was it a million words or something like that? He did a lot of funny yeah. family. I mean, he did a lot of family, family comedies movies, movie yeah. as he got I, as he got later. I, I but we love we love Daddy Daycare. That was one Daddy we, Daycare we watched was a million the best. times. Yes, That's with it. that little boy. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Daddy Daycare is definitely yeah. a good one. Um, but I especially like Raw. His his stand up his stand up comedy man. I just go back to that Raw like which I've never seen. possibly because. I wasn't supposed to be watching it. And so, you know. <laughs> right. And my friends and I just laughed hysterically. Mm. Um, and we just thought it was so funny. But I couldn't go home and tell my mama, hey, I was just right, over right. at so-and-so's house watching Raw, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that's why I liked it so much. Because I had to sneak to watch it. But mm-hmm. um, but it was very funny, you know. Oh, yeah. So. All right, cool. Well, let's talk about Dan Aykroyd. So uh, John Landis wanted Dan Aykroyd to serve as Murphy's co-star. He had worked previously with Aykroyd on the musical comedy The Blues Brothers in 1980, Mm -hmm. and the experience had been very positive. Paramount Pictures was less enamored with Aykroyd. Executives believed that he performed better as part of a duo as as he had working with John Belushi. They felt Aykroyd working alone would be akin to Bud Abbott without Costello, Mm. and Aykroyd's recent films had fared poorly at the box office, but Aykroyd agreed to take to take a pay cut for the role, so he was willing to do it. But I thought, you know, him and Eddie Murphy were a great combo yeah. together, mm-hmm. even though, you know, they don't really get together until the very end of the movie, but mm-hmm. they, they worked well uh, together. So a little bit about Dan Aykroyd. We talked about him in Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2, but he was a writer and original member of the Not Ready for Primetime Players cast of Saturday Night Live, from 1975 till 1979, so he, he and Eddie Murphy had not worked together mm. on Saturday Night Live together. They were 
two different, you know. Yeah. Uh, five years later. Yeah. Five well, year difference, kind of. Well, Ackroyd was Ackroyd left in '79. Murphy came in in '80. So okay, so okay, right just the, yeah. one went out, one came in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of course, Ackroyd gained prominence for writing and starring in Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters Two, and reprising his role in various projects within the Ghostbusters franchise. He's also known for his comedic roles in Spies Like Us in 85, Dragnet in 87, Coneheads in 93, The Great Outdoors in 88, The Blues Brothers in 80, as well as his 1998 sequel. In 1990, he was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his role as Bully Worthen in Driving Miss Daisy. Other dramatic roles include My Girl in 1991, Chaplin, and Sneakers. Both came out in 1992. I remember Coneheads. <laughs> the Saturday Night, Sk- the Saturday Night the, the skit, skit or the movie? Both. Yeah. The skit and the movie. Um, and I also uh, remember My Girl. Mm-hmm. He was the dad, right? Yeah, he was the dad yes. in My Girl. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's worked steadily for a long time. And he's yeah. sometimes in very smaller, you know, yeah. more here lately in more smaller roles. But he does really well. He's a good dramatic actor as well as comedian mm-hmm. actor, but... Spies Like Us with him and Chevy Chase. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to cover that uh, in a couple of months, or next month, which will be fun. Dragnet, him and a young Tom Hanks. Uh, great Outdoors is still one of my favorites with him and John Candy. Of course. He's yeah. great. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I love Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> yeah. It's a fun guy. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's talk about Jamie Lee Curtis. Jamie uh, Lee. The studio also objected to the casting of Jamie Lee Curtis. At the time, she was seen... As just a screen queen, primarily associated with low-quality B-movies, Landis had worked previously with Curtis on the horror documentary Coming Soon, for which she had served as the host. She wanted to move away from horror films as she was conscious that the association would limit her future career prospects. She had, dur- she had turned down a role in the horror film Psycho 2 in 83 because of this. Of course, her mother, Janet Lee had famously starred in Psycho in 1960. Curtis had performed recently in the slasher film Halloween 2 in 81 as a favor to director John Carpenter and producer Deborah Hill. She was paid $1 million for that role, but only received $70,000 for trading places. So she also took a pay cut wow. for this role. But like I said, they didn't they didn't think she could do comedy. They didn't think she could do mm-hmm. anything besides mm-hmm. being in a horror movie. But of course, she plays Ophelia. So as we mentioned, she's the youngest daughter of actors Janet Lee and Tony Curtis. She made her television debut in a 1977 episode of the NBC drama series Quincy, M.E. Mm-hmm. Curtis made her film debut and rose to prominence with her portrayal of Laurie Strode in John Carpenter's Halloween in 1978. A critical and commercial success, the film established Curtis as a scream queen, as we said, and led, led to starring roles in the horror films The Fog, Prom Night, Terror Train, which were all released in 1980, as well as Road Games in 81. She reprised her role of Strode in six of the Halloween sequels, concluding with Halloween Ends in 2022. Look, she was busy in 1980. Yeah. I remember The Fog and Prom Night. Yeah. Don't think I ever saw Terror Train. I haven't Train. seen Terror Train. I actually just watched Road Games not too long mm-hmm. ago, and it's it's an Australian movie. Okay. Uh, but it's it's interesting. So, Jamie Lee Curtis. And, of course, we know her as Mrs. Crank from uh, Christmas Cranks. and the Cranks. One of my favorites. <laughs> yeah. That's one of our favorite uh, yes. holiday movies for sure. Mm-hmm. All right, and so then moving down the line, we got Ralph Bellamy as Randolph Duke. For the greedy Duke brothers, Ralph Bellamy was the first choice for Randolph. During his career, he played leading roles as well as supporting roles, garnering acclaim and awards, including a Tony Award for Best Actor in a Play for Sunrise at Campobello, as well as Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor nomination in The Awful Truth in 1937. 
He gained notoriety for his roles in Boy Meets Girl in 1938, His Girl Friday in 1940, Flight Angels in 1940, The Wolfman in 41, and Sunrise at Campobello in 1960, which we mentioned already. He's also known for his later roles in Rosemary's Baby in 1968, Oh God in 1977, and Pretty Woman in 1990. Wow. He was old. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So for Mortimer, Landis wanted to cast a famous actor of the 30s and 40s who was not associated with playing a villain. His first choice was Ray Milan, but the actor was unable to pass a physical test to qualify for insurance while filming. As a start date for filming Loom, Landis thought of Don Amici. The casting director claimed that Amici was dead. Landis was skeptical of this and contacted the Screen Actors Guild in an attempt to locate him. They confirmed that Amici had no agent and his royalty payments were being forwarded to his son in Arizona. Landis accepted this as evidence that Amici was deceased. However, after hearing of Landis's search, one of the Paramount Studios secretaries mentioned they saw Amici regularly on San Vicente Boulevard in Santa Monica, <laughs> California. Landis called directory assistance, and this is the 80s, remember, yes. to locate a D. Amici in the area and made contact. Amici had not featured in a film for over a decade. When asked why, he said that no one had offered him film work. But a little history about him. After playing in college shows, stocks, and vaudevilles, he became a major radio star in the early 1930s, which led to the offer of a movie contract from 20th Century Fox in 1935. As a handsome, debonair, leading man in 40 films over the next 14 years, he starred in comedies, dramas, and musicals. In the 1950s, he worked on Broadway and in television and was the host of NBC's International Showtime from 1961 to 1965. Returning to film work in his later years, Amici enjoyed a fruitful revival of his career, which began with Trading Places in 83. He went on to win the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his performance in Cocoon cool. in 1985. Wow. Yep. Wow. So, yeah. I, you know, this, this is what I remember him from, uh, this movie for sure. But then, of course, when Cocoon came out, I was a big fan of that movie as well. Uh, but, of course, both Ralph Bellamy and Don Amici make cameo appearances in Coming to America in 1988 as the same characters. The two are now homeless, and Prince Akeem gives them a large amount of money to get them back off the streets, which... You don't really? remember that scene? I remember the scene, but yeah. I didn't realize it was because... Oh, yeah, yeah. It was with the two the of two, them. The two broke brothers yeah. from Trading Places. Yeah, because uh, I think Don Amici was like, Randolph, we're back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. That's yeah. cool. Yep. Yeah. so very good. They were they were a good pairing. The two mm-hmm. of them worked well together. And I think I have a story about Don Amici later on if I don't. may have to remind me, so... All right, then we got Denholm Elliott as Coleman. He appeared in numerous productions on stage and screen, receiving three BAFTA awards for Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Trading Places, also for A Private Function in 84 and Defense of the Realm in 86. He received a nomination for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his portrayal of Mr. Emerson in A Room with a View in 1985. He's also known for his performances in Alfie in 66, A Doll's House in 73, A Bridge Too Far in 77, Maurice in 87, September in 87, and Noises Off in 1992. I remember him most as Marcus Brody in Raiders of the Lost Ark, 81, and Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade in 1989. My favorite scene of his is when at the end when they're in disguise and he's using the little, what is the Irish or Scottish accent as the priest? Yes. So I just thought that was great. It was funny. Uh, we're not, of course, we don't cover the whole cast. We're just trying to cover people that we would recognize uh, another 80s standard bad guy, Paul Gleason as Clarence Beeks, the private investigator. 
Uh, Gleason starred in many movies and became well-known initially as Dr. David Thornton on All My Children, playing the role from 1976 to 78. He guest starred in The Trouble with Harry and Fire, two episodes of The A-Team. He was also known to Star Wars fans for his role as Jeremy Tawani in the 1985 made-for-TV movie Ewoks The Battle for Endor. Most people know him as the uh, Richard Vernon from Breakfast Club, and then, of course, Police Chief Dwayne T. Robinson in Die Hard. Those are the two most familiar, mm, I think. Okay. He played similar characters in the 1988 film Johnny B. Good as a high school football coach and several episodes of the TV sitcom Boy Meets World as a university dean. Of course, he directly parodied his Breakfast Club role in the 2018's music video for Dancing Queen and in the 2000 comedy film Not Another Teen Movie. So, But yeah, Paul Gleason, it's not a name that you would recognize, but as soon as you see mm-hmm. him, you know pretty much plays the same character, or at least in in this, the principal in Breakfast Club and the police deputy, deputy police chief in Die Hard. And then the last person we'll mention is Jim Belushi as Harvey the party goer on New Year's Eve. He appeared in such films as Thief in 81, Salvador in 86, About Last Night in 86, Red Heat in 88, K-9 in 89, Jingle All the Way in 1996, Hoodwinked in 2005, The Wild in 2006, Underdog in 2007. He's the younger brother of late comedy actor John Belushi. So, which I think is probably why they had him in the movie as a, you know, little homage to uh, his brother. The film does have numerous cameos, including singer Bo Diddley as the pawnbroker, which we talked about when Mm -hmm. we were watching it. Jamie Lee Curtis's sister Kelly as Penelope's friend Muffy. Mm -hmm. The Muppets puppeteers Frank Oz and Richard Hunt as respectively, a police officer, and Wilson, the Duke's broker on, on the trading floor. floor yeah. I always know Frank Oz because his voice, I mean, it sounds so much like mm-hmm. Kermit the Frog. Mm-hmm. So, The baggage handlers at the end were supposed to be played by Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas as the McKenzie brothers from SCTV. When they fell through, Dan Aykroyd or Eddie Murphy recommended Tom Davis and Al Franken from their Saturday Night Live days, which they were pretty funny. I remember Al Franken from Saturday Night Live. I don't remember Tom Davis. Other minor roles include Ron Taylor as Big Black Guy, American football player J.T. Turner as even bigger black guy who only says, yeah. <laughs> oh, in the jail? In the jail, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And at the bar. Uh-huh. And then, of course, his big screen debut, Giancarlo Esposito, was the yeah. cellmate next to uh, Eddie Murphy mm-hmm. when he was in Practicing the jail. Practicing his karate. Mm-hmm, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so the station master, the man who refers to the care and feeding instructions for the gorilla, is played by Steven Stucker. He may have gone unnoticed in this film, but he's well known to audiences for his stage-stealing wisecracks and Airplane 1980 and its sequel, Airplane 2. And the gorilla scene at the end yeah, was, was hilarious. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, since we're talking about scenes, uh, let's talk about iconic and favorite scenes. So iconic scene, if... If you if someone mentioned the movie Trading Places, what's the first scene that you think of? Mm, the first scene that I think of probably um, when they're all in that that meeting room, and the brothers are like, "There's a thief among us." Oh yeah. And um, when they announce that it's Winthrop, he's mm-hmm. like, "I'm no thief. Mm-hmm. I'm no thief." Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, and everybody's just sitting there like. How could you? Mm-hmm. How could you steal from us? Like, they're so quick to believe oh, yeah. the brothers. And, mm-hmm. you know, but Winthrop is like one of the biggest money-making, mm-hmm. you know, agents in the building. Right, so right. It's, it's, it's just funny how, how quick they were to believe that he was a thief. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, iconic scenes. For me, the iconic scene is them at the end in their different costumes in the <laughs> in the train car when they get when they front when they're meeting Beaks and of course Eddie Murphy comes in with his like African garb on and <laughs> so, <laughs> sounding like cool runners. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, you know the butler coming in, Coleman comes in in his uh, his priest, priest outfit, mm-hmm. and then Jamie Lee Curtis comes in in a, a from Speed, and, mm-hmm. and then you know not not funny now, but uh, Dan Aykroyd in his black face is the Jamaican. Yeah, like what are you doing, dude? Right. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> things that you can't do now that right. they did back then, uh-huh. uh, but. You know, yeah. but you think back. I mean, they the they Richard Pryor did blackface in did. Stir Crazy, yeah. so you could see why that was probably you know it was a little bit more accepted back then. Not yeah. that we condone that now, but just uh, that that's kind of one of those cringe scenes now. Rewatching it as you get older. Well, it, at that time, no, that was like the borderline of changing uh, what was funny. Yeah, because yeah. for so long that was you know 60s, 70s. I, I would say probably 82, 85. Yeah, that's that was eighty three. Like so off. yeah, it's cut off. Well, mm-hmm. that ain't funny no more. Right, you know. Right. So they, you know, a lot of actors had to put on mm-hmm. the paint to, right. to portray that. So, but that was acceptable back then. But yeah, you're right. Because when I saw it the other day, I was like, ooh. You almost forget that's there until yeah, it pops up. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but I did think I was like, well, they had to change his appearance enough because mm-hmm. Me- Meeks, Meeks knew who he was. Who he was. Yeah. was. So he mm-hmm. had to change, but. The blackface didn't change. You know, it didn't you, change you knew enough. Who it was. Yeah, yeah, didn't change enough. Uh, so, what about favorite scenes? Do you have any favorite scenes from the movie? I think I like the scene where they finally, when they're they're in separate cabs, yes, and they see each other, yeah. And you know, Winthrop was like, "There he is! Mm-hmm. There's the guy! He stole my, you know, yeah. basically stole my identity, right?" And um, and Valentine is like. Hey, there he yeah. is. Yeah, <laughs> you know that's the guy I bumped that's, into. Yeah, that's the guy that I'm um, living in his house. You mm-hmm. know, um, and then when they finally meet to plan the get back, mm-hmm. you know, like it's just I guess one of the details at that point I think that was missing is like, well, why didn't they go back and say, dude, I really wasn't trying to steal your bag. Right. Yeah. They never. You just you just yeah. thought I was because I was black. But yeah, they do they do kind of make amends pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, knowing that that you know, it's kind of like you know. The enemy of my enemy is my mm-hmm, friend. So mm-hmm. for that kind of idea. But yeah, you never really see a true reconciliation. Mm-hmm. They just all of a sudden become plotting. Yeah, become best friends yeah. from plotting against the, yeah. the the Duke brothers. But yeah, my favorite though, that is one of my favorites, them passing in the cabs. Mm-hmm. And then of course, um, at the end where uh when they got they're rich now mm-hmm. and Coleman has the girlfriend. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah, like, yeah. Oh wow, look at Coleman. He yeah. came up. He ain't serving people no more. Right, he got right. his own money mm-hmm. and he you know. Got him a girl. Yeah, so. I did like they gave Coleman a little bit of a personality. Like you found out early that he didn't like Winthrop and he didn't mm-hmm. like the Dukes, and so yep. it was good to know that he was he was able to get in on the end. Uh, you know, get the pay the get back as you said. Yeah. Um, oh, when, the other scene. I'm oh, sorry. Okay. The other scene I like was when Eddie Murphy got in the house and he realized, you know, hey, I got all this. Oh yeah. And yeah. he threw that. Par- all those people went to the house and he was mm-hmm. having a party. Yeah, and he threw them all and, out. Um, Col- yeah, when he threw him out, but Coleman yeah. was like jamming to the music. <laughs> it's like okay. Get- Call me getting down. Right, Wait a minute. <laughs> it was like they were actually doing something in the house besides just being in mean, the house, right? Yeah, being like, you know, pretty good party and, and, yeah. and stodgy. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned earlier the scene in the bathroom when mm-hmm. uh, Murphy realizes that the about the bet. When, Mm-hmm, they didn't realize he was mm-hmm. in the bathroom. There was another one scene that. Oh yeah, when they funny. were in the, he he oh, he's in, he's in the bathroom smoking a joint. 
Right. And then the people come in and he, he swallowed the joint. Like, or he he's trying to, to yeah. hold the smoke. Yeah, they <laughs> did. Yeah. He, he puts it in his mouth and he makes a face. And then it goes to the Duke brothers. So you never see what happens. And you come back and he keeps his mouth closed, but you never really see him get rid of the cigarette. You don't cigarette. hear him cough. You right. don't hear Yeah. So right. I'm they assuming. They don't smell anything. Yeah. I'm assuming he spit it out, but they didn't. They, the, yeah. the scene's not there. But so. when they when they talk about the plan that they had mm-hmm. and he overhears that and it's like, oh, busted. Uh, and they realize it was all over $1. That was the $1 standard. $1 bet. Yep. The standard bet. Uh, so, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of funny scenes like the uh, the opening scene with Eddie Murphy where he's the you know on his knees and trying to pretend like he's blind. He's doing his, you know his, like going back to the the Saturday Night Live. He always did impressions of Eddie Murphy. So you saw that in that scene yes. with him doing doing the blind thing and it's like you know what uh, I would get him back from Viet- Vietnam and he's like what what you know where you in you know or where were you, where were you stationed oh you know Du Fang and Du Wang and he just throwing out names. He just says stuff right. Which I read something there like that was. Because it was really written with Richard Pryor in mind, he was older. Mm-hmm. Like Eddie Murphy would have been too young to be in Vietnam. Right, like it right. didn't, it uh, didn't make sense for me to say he was in Nam because <laughs> it was too young. Um, but yeah, but that that scene that that was one of the scenes that always made, especially when they pick him up and his legs come out. It's yeah. a miracle, right? Thank right. you, Jesus, Jesus, God, Jesus, thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's you know that's just that's just, that's, that's Eddie just Murphy. Like that's Eddie Murphy. that was a great way to introduce mm-hmm. him, and then you know him trying to run away, and of course I'm bumping into uh, Winthorpe. They they both play their characters really well, which is mm-hmm. why I think it works. Like Winthorpe, you know, Dan Aykroyd really comes across as like that stuck up preppy, yes, rich you know, white rich, guy. Rich, 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 rich white guy. He played mm-hmm. played that well, and then of course Eddie Murphy, you know. Uh, does well on both sides. Just a being, cut up. Being a cut up. And then even as he becomes, I love the parts when he's more established yes. or distinguished. Distinguished. And yeah. then you, he want, he wants to, to, to cuss and he catches himself and mm-hmm. always tries to clean it up, which I, <laughs> I, I thought was, was funny. And I like the scenes like it, you know, as much seeing their, them playing the different role, like watching Eddie Murphy become more distinguished and, you know, he's mm-hmm. dressing better. And, and tell them how they can make some money. Right. Appreciating mm-hmm. things. And then watching Ackroyd just like being this, he fell up, he fell apart. He fell apart, apart so, yeah, <laughs> just, so quick. Um, <laughs> he fell apart. Like I can't no, oh believe no. like this. The scene of him when he's going to frame uh, Valentine, and he's in the dirty Santa suit, and he's trying to steal all the food off the table, and he's putting all his food in the clothes. Yes, yes. That that is another iconic scene. Like I think about that, and then when he's on the bus later, and he pulls out the salmon. To start to eat it, and he's eating more of his beard he's than the salmon. The beard. Oh gosh, it's so gross. But, but he was—he was like at his lowest right yeah, there too. Yeah, like yeah. that was it. Yeah, him standing in the rain, watching Eddie Murphy have dinner with Live all his, his old friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they—they—it was very well made, very well put together. Seeing the 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 dynamics and the conflict. And now these messages. Hey there, fellow 80s movie aficionados. Are you ready to embark on a nostalgia-filled journey to the greatest era of cinema? Then look no further than the Retro Life For You 80s Movie Podcast. Join us every week as we rewind the VHS tapes, dust off those Betamax classics, and dive headfirst into the neon-soaked, totally tubular world of the 1980s movies. From the Brat Pack to Action Heroes, we've got it all covered. Breakfast Club, Ghostbusters, E.T. and Indiana Jones, and more. It's like a trip in Doc Brown's time machine, but without the DeLorean. So whether you're a diehard 80s film buff 
or just curious about the cinematic gems of the past, Retro Life for You is your ticket to the ultimate movie time warp. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Retro Life for You. And we can be found anywhere you listen to your podcast, as well as on our website, www.retrolife, the number four, the letter U.com. Are you a fan of movies and TV shows inspired by comics? Ready for a podcast that dives deep into the thrilling world of adaptations? Well, look no further. Welcome to Moving Panels, the podcast where we discuss movies and TV shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. This is your go-to podcast for all things comics on screen. I'm your host, Laramie Wells, and every Monday we explore the dynamic universe where ink meets action. We break down the classics, reveal hidden gems, and uncover the creative process behind your favorite adaptations. Subscribe to Moving Panels now on your favorite podcast platform and join us on this epic journey through the pages of comics and onto the big screen. Remember, new episodes drop every Monday. Don't miss out. Moving Panels, where every panel has a story and every adaptation is a blockbuster. Subscribe today, and I'll see you on the other side of the page. Let's jump into some scenes and trivia. We'll maybe think of some other scenes uh, as we go. I won't hit all these. Some of these I'll put in the show notes, but we'll, we'll get a couple here. In a 2013 interview, a co-writer, Timothy Harris, talked about Hollywood's reluctance to make comedies satirizing greed and social conventions. This is his quote. He said, Trading Places is a sort of throwback film that owed more to the films of the 40s and 50s than it does to anything that was going on in Hollywood at the time it was made. Brewster's Millions in 85 was a social comedy about money and greed and what it does to people. But after that, there were no films like that being made anymore. Comedies were being directed at a specific group of kids, teenagers, and that seemed to take over a great deal. I think it's probably an American thing. They're not interested in looking at that stuff particularly. I don't think Hollywood is either. It's awkward for them. The important people in Hollywood are really, really filthy rich. They don't, they don't want to see that made fun of particularly. <laughs> which I thought was mm-hmm. a good, which is true. You don't see these type of movies that much anymore. No, you don't. Um, which I've made that come before. It's like, when you talk about money, like anytime you see somebody rich now in the movies, mm-hmm. they always have this thing about, you know, money's not important. You know, it's about family, which is true. It's about family and the relationships you build or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, but you guys are making all this money of us. Go, you're you're teaching us to not be, not to not to worry about money. But you're the one making the money by us going to see these movies. So anyway, I digress. That's my philosophical moment, I guess. (laughs) I thought this was funny. In 2010, as part of the Wall Street Transparency and Accountability Act, which was to regulate financial markets, a rule was included which barred anyone from using secret inside information to corner markets, similar to what the Duke brothers tried to do in the movie. Since the movie inspired this rule, it has since become known as the Eddie Murphy rule. No way. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> which I'm cool. like, why did it take till 2010 for them to put this and make this a rule? <laughs> because people were still making a whole lot of money with inside of trading. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eddie Murphy later admitted that on the floor of the commodities exchange in the final scene, he only followed the script. He had no idea what was going on as he found <laughs> commodities trading incredibly confusing. Now that's good acting. When Thorpe and Valentine conduct what's known as, so they'll kind of give you some, some I thought this was interesting because it gives you some information. What they're doing is called short selling, selling stocks or commodities that one doesn't own and then repurchasing the security at a lower price. 
It's the same principle as buy low, sell high, just with the clients, I'm sorry, just with the actions performed in reverse order. This is available to most clients in the sense that they borrow the security from the holdings of their brokerage houses. It doesn't seem like Winthorpe and Valentine have a house from which to borrow their contracts, but Winthorpe appears to have the guts to short sell on the fly knowing the consequences of a mistake. Winthorpe was trading on a cash basis using cash collateral, which is why Coleman and Ophelia gave the two traders all their mm-hmm. cash in the train station. So that, mm-hmm. that makes that scene make a little bit more sense, mm-hmm. I think, there. So, uh, And the last one I have, and this is why I was going to mention about Donamichi, Don which I thought was interesting. His strong religious convictions made him uncomfortable with swearing. This proved to be a problem for the scene at the end of the movie where he had to shout or had to use the F word to a group of Wall Street executives. When he did act the scene, it had to be done in one take because Amici refused to do a second one. Wow. Okay. And I read something else earlier that said that anytime he swore in the movie, he would apologize to everybody on set for using that language. Aww. So, okay. His conviction. His conviction. There we go. So, all right. Anything, any other scenes or anything else you can think of you want to talk about? Mm-hmm. I think we covered it pretty well. All right. Let's talk about box office and critical reception. The United States and Canada Trading Places received a wide release on Wednesday, June 8, 1983. The film earned $1.7 million, leading into its opening weekend when it earned a further $7.3 million. Mm. Trading Places finished as the number three film of the weekend behind Octopussy, also making its debut that weekend, and Return of the Jedi, which was mm. in its third week of release. Wow. It's going to be tough to beat Return of the Jedi in 83. While the film never claimed the number one spot, it spent 17 straight weeks among the top 10 highest-grossing films. By September, it was the fourth highest-grossing film of the year, and by the end of its theatrical run, earned an approximate box office gross of $90.4 million. It finished as the fourth highest-grossing film of 83, behind Paramount Studios' surprise hit Flashdance, the comedy drama Terms of Endearment, and The Return of the Jedi, which was number one. So, it made a lot of money. It did well. Rotten Tomatoes has it at 88% on the tomato meter with an 85% audience score. IMDb is a 7.5 out of 10 with viewers and a 69 on Metacritic. So for you, where would you grade Trading Places? Whereas it is in the, out of 100, the 80s, 90s, 70s? I don't know. What would you grade? <laughs> um, it's in the 80s for me. Like it's, it's, it, it doesn't age as well in some spots and it, yeah, but it, I'm it, thinking, mm, yeah, I'd say 75. Okay. Yeah. That's 75. honest. Yeah. I think I graded it on my Instagram, my social media uh, stuff, and I think I gave it a B minus, which is in like the low 80s. And people are like, this is an A plus movie. I say, All right. you know, it does kind of, it goes off the rails at the end. Like, it's really good up until the train sequence. Yeah. And then it just kind of, it's like they decide to just throw everything, make it as zany and crazy as yeah, possible. They, they could have toned it down. Different plan. Yeah. To, yeah. To get beats. Right. To and even the whole thing with the with the ape, I didn't that think was, was necessary. That was, yeah, was, yeah, like they really stuck it to beats. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, something that was probably a lot funnier in 1983 than it is now. So. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you, Tyra, for oh, joining me for thank this you episode. For having me. Always good to have you on the show and uh, have you back next year. we got a few we're going to do. I know you're excited about one we're going to do. Oh, what is it? Jaws. <gasps> yes. <laughs> yes. Big time. 
All right, so be sure to follow us, subscribe, rate, and review the show. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with someone who loves 80s flicks. Follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. You can send us uh, an email at info at 80sflickflashback.com. Support the show through buymeacoffee.com. Buy a t-shirt or a sweatshirt from the website. Sales have been really good. I've been, I've been getting oh, notifications every about day. shirts being sold. We've got some really cool Better Off Dead shirts that are selling really well. i got some holiday shirts uh, for the holidays inspired by a Christmas Vacation, A Christmas Story, Die Hard. Uh, those are selling pretty well. i got a new one from, uh, this isn't necessarily Christmas, but another one that's selling pretty well is from Adventures in Babysitting. Nobody oh, leaves yeah. this place without singing the blues. So that's the shirt. So go check those out. They're on tpublic.com. You also you can also find them on our website, 80sflipflashback.com. That's it. Thanks, every, right. thanks everybody, for listening. Thanks, uh, Tyra, for being here. This is Tim Williams for the 80s Flip Flashback. Good night, good people. Good still here? It's over. Go home. Go.